Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19 as we're picking back up in our series on the gospel of Luke today. And I love the gospels. They always amaze me when I see how each one is a beautifully crafted portrait of Jesus Christ. And as you study the Gospels, there are points where the portrait that the Gospel author has been painting, so to speak, starts to become clear. For me, it's kind of like watching a guy named Bob Ross paint as a kid. Uh, Growing up, sports would end over the summer, and that along with being out of school, left me with way too much time on my hands. So I naturally did what any young boy would do. I turned on the TV to watch an old guy paint for hours. So, <laughs> um, if you don't know who I'm talking about, he does have a YouTube channel with over 5 million subscribers, so I'm not alone in this love, I assure you. But basically, he was a painter with this smooth voice who narrated everything that he did as he painted, the brush strokes, the the way he combined the colors together. And it was so fascinating to watch him paint. But what I loved the most about watching him paint was how when you started, you didn't really know what the scene was going to be. And so you're waiting the entire time that he's painting to see what it is that he's showing to you. He might give you some kind of general idea but as each section is painted, you're wondering, is it, is it woods? Is it an ocean? You know, what is it? And I loved watching him paint. And this reminded me of how the gospel writers have compiled their accounts. You see, they organized their gospels in such a way that each story, each parable, each interaction that we see is making their portrait of Jesus Christ more clear to us. So as we study any section of the Gospels, we want to understand what has been leading to it. And today's passage is a perfect example because it opens up so much when we see how Luke has been leading us to it. You see, the bulk of Luke's Gospel is the journey of Jesus to Jerusalem to fulfill his mission as the suffering Savior. And our passage today is the final interaction before Jesus enters in to Jerusalem. This journey of Jesus for Luke started all the way back in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, and Jesus foretells his death two times, which we know will happen in Jerusalem, we read this in verse 51, that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And along this journey, Luke reminds us often throughout the next nine chapters of his gospel that Jesus is resolutely heading to Jerusalem where he will die. We also see along the way, as we've studied this together, Jesus's mission as Savior become more and more clear. One theme that I hope you've seen of this mission has been Jesus's special care for the poor. As we've seen many contrasts of the rich and the poor throughout this gospel, with the poor being the ones that receive the blessings and commendations from Jesus, and often the rich wouldn't. Another theme that Luke has throughout this section is one of sinners and outcasts as the one who accepts and follow Jesus to receive the same blessings and commendation. 
And all of this is leading into our passage. But the beauty of Luke's gospel really starts to shine in the flow from chapters 18 and 19. So I want you to kind of look there with me, and I want to walk us through what has happened. Towards the beginning of chapter 18, starting in verse 9, Jesus gives a parable about a tax collector being justified by his confession as a sinner. This is then followed in verses 15 to 17, where we see there's a necessity of coming to Christ like a child. After this, in verses 18 through 26, we see a rich ruler's unwillingness to give up his riches to inherit eternal life and a proclamation of how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. But there's a beautiful moment of hope in Luke 18, 27, where Jesus says this, when people ask, how then can somebody be saved? He says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And I want you to cling to that as we study our passage today. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Chapter 18 then closes with Jesus foretelling his death a third time, the disciples not understanding, but a blind beggar being the one who sees who Jesus truly was. The brushstrokes of Luke's gospel, so to speak, have been slowly revealing this beautiful portrait of our Savior. And our passage today is meant to open our eyes to what has been painted for us as it ties all this together in one interaction. So what I want to do is start by reading the passage in full. And I want to encourage you to observe the scene in light of the context that I've just mentioned. Look at Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And he, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he, Jesus, was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now hopefully you've already seen the connections in this story to what we've been studying. But what I want to do is highlight five things that I see and how they shape our response to Jesus. And the first thing that I see in this passage is a fitting representation. Look closely at the details that Luke gives in verses 1 and 2. He starts by saying that Jesus was passing through Jericho. You see, this is another pointer to the fact that Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem. That's where he's heading. He's passing through Jericho. 
But I think the comment about passing through is really interesting if you think about it. Because it's tempting to think that Jesus had no plans in Jericho. And that this interaction is somehow an interruption in Jesus' path to Jerusalem. But when we look closer at the passage, we see that Jesus knew Zacchaeus. And that he had plans for him all along. So what I think Luke is doing in this opening is he's subtly building the surprise at the interaction that Jesus has with Zacchaeus. So that when we get there, we're like, what? Then what we see in verse 2 is that we're intentionally drawn into the description that Luke gives of Zacchaeus. Notice the word behold. It's designed to grab the reader's attention so that we see the two details that Luke points out about Zacchaeus. And what does he tell us? First, Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. Now, the fact that he was a tax collector should stand out, right? Because we just heard in chapter 18 a parable of a tax collector who was justified before God. However, Zacchaeus wasn't just a tax collector. He was the first in rank among tax collectors. He was a chief tax collector. And tax collectors were notoriously outcast in Israel because they were Jews who imposed the Roman tax on Israelites. They're traitors, essentially. They were also known for how they cheated and defrauded people of their money by taking more than they needed to gain wealth for themselves. One commentator suggests this is the climax of Luke's emphasis on the outcast as Zacchaeus would have been the ultimate of Israel's outcasts. Could a sinner of this magnitude receive mercy? Luke also makes sure that we understand that he was rich. I want you to think about this. Everyone that was reading Luke's gospel at this time would have naturally understood that Zacchaeus was rich as a tax collector. It's not something they would have had to been told. Not only was he a tax collector, he was a chief tax collector. Not only was he a chief tax collector, he was a chief tax collector in the city of Jericho, which was a major trade city, one of the three main tax offices in Palestine, yielding high Roman taxes. So you're almost like, well, yeah, Luke, of course he was rich. Why does Luke say, and he was rich? I want you to think about it. I believe what he's doing is reminding us of what just transpired in Luke chapter 18, verses 24 to 27. Do you remember when the rich ruler wouldn't give up his riches? What did Jesus say? He says, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when people naturally ask, then who can be saved? Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. You see, church, Zacchaeus is a fitting representation of two vital aspects of Luke's gospel. One, that Jesus cares deeply for the outcast and the lost. 
two, that God can and does do the impossible by saving those who are seemingly impossible to reach, like the rich. And we're going to see this play out in this passage. The second thing I want to highlight in verses 3 and 4 is a persistent desire. Notice what happens there. And pay attention to Luke's phrasing. Zacchaeus isn't just seeking to see Jesus. He wants to see who Jesus was. Undoubtedly, he had heard the stories of this man. Possibly even how Jesus had recently given sight to the blind beggar just outside of Jericho. Maybe word had gotten to him of a fellow tax collector named Levi who left everything and followed Jesus. What made Jesus so special? Zacchaeus had to know. And we show, we see by Luke that this isn't just a simple desire. It's one of desperation, really. Because we see how Zacchaeus was too short to see through the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore tree. Now I can understand Zacchaeus' struggle because before I turned 15, I was only four foot 10 inches tall, about 147 centimeters. And I often struggled to see through crowds. Some of you guys can understand, N.A. probably has never had that problem in his life. But I want you to picture this man's desperation and persistence. Just think about the scene. Now we should understand that it's strange for a grown man to be running in Jewish society, much less one of his position and prominence. Just imagine what it would be like for a wealthy government official in Abu Dhabi to climb a tree just to see who someone was that was walking through their town. It's really a vivid, it's a dramatic scene. Dare I say, childlike? Do you see the picture that Jesus is painting, that is being painted by Luke here? I want you to grasp its significance. I think what we ultimately see here, though, is the initial work of God in Zacchaeus' heart. One that he wasn't fully aware of, but one that was happening to draw him to his Savior. Because what would cause a rich and powerful man to act like this just to see who someone was? What is impossible with man is possible with God. And before we move on, I want to ask a question to start guiding our response to this passage. Are you seeking to truly see Jesus? In what ways is your desire to see Jesus known? Maybe it's the time you spend alone with God in the scriptures to know your Savior. Maybe it's the persistence to press through the difficulties of coming to church downtown or a church without nursery or while being uncomfortable wearing masks. Maybe it's the dedication that you give to spend time with other believers at home group or DNA or in other moments of fellowship to see Jesus in them. Or maybe sadly, you aren't trying that hard to see Jesus at all. I want to challenge you. Let the persistent desire that you see in Zacchaeus 
Zacchaeus today challenge you to press harder to know your Savior. He's everything that we need. The next thing I want to highlight is found in verse 5. This is the shift in this interaction. And here we see a purposeful Savior. Pay close attention to what happens in verse 5. In fact, Natalie, can you put that back on the screen? I'm just going to read it again. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. This is really a fascinating resolution to Zacchaeus' problem and desire to see Jesus. He wanted to see who Jesus was. So he ran, he climbed a tree to see something about Jesus as he passed by. But Jesus had other plans for this man. Notice that Jesus stops and looks at him. Notice that Jesus doesn't ask to stay with him. He says, I must stay at your house today. You see, church, Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was, but Jesus looks at Zacchaeus knowing exactly who he was. Zacchaeus was hoping to maybe just get a glimpse of who Jesus was as he passed by, but Jesus was planning to meet intimately with Zacchaeus, revealing the truth of who he really is to him. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, Zacchaeus went up into the sycamore tree that he might see Jesus, but he was himself seen there by Jesus. And that, dear friends, is the first act in the process of salvation. Jesus looks at us, and then we look at him. This is such a pivotal moment to see clearly in this scene that Luke is laying out for us. The resolution to Zacchaeus' desire to see who Jesus was is Jesus purposefully stopping to seek to be with him. The depths of our God and Savior's kindness is on full display as he initiates the interaction with this man. And these are depths of kindness that only get sweeter as we continue in our passage. But there's something else that I think might be at play here. Do you know what kind of tree Jericho was known for? I'll give you a hint. It wasn't a sycamore tree. Deuteronomy 34.3 calls it the city of palm trees. A commentator pointed out that a study in 2015 indicated that the sycamore tree was brought to Israel, and therefore Jericho, by the Philistines during the Iron Age, which lasted from about 1200 B.C. to 550 B.C. So they're not native to this part of the world. But sycamore trees are known for their low-hanging branches, which make them much easier to climb than palm trees. So let me ask you, was it by chance that this sycamore tree was planted here on the road for Zacchaeus to climb as Jesus passed by? 
I don't think it was. I think this is another way we see God's purposeful work in Zacchaeus' life. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 tells us this about Jesus, that all things were created through him. And in him, all things hold together. He is sustaining everything around us. So the tree was there at this spot, created and sustained by the same God who knew who Zacchaeus was, looked him in the eyes, and was determined to stay with him. Just take that in. The magnitude of our God's grace and love for this man. And so this leads me to the second question to guide our response today. Have you recognized God's purposeful work in your life? Is there, if you look back and you think about it, is there a sycamore tree moment? Do you remember the time when Jesus looked first at you? I'm confident that if we really think about it rightly, we all have moments like these because as we're going to see at the end of this passage, our Savior seeks and saves. Such an important truth to understand. The next thing that I see that I want to highlight is a transformed affection. This is where this interaction really starts to open up. Look at verses 6 and 7 with me. Just notice the reaction to Jesus' request. Zacchaeus doesn't delay. He doesn't hesitate. He didn't say, Jesus, give me a moment to figure out how to get down this tree. He didn't say, wait, I'm going to have to get my house in order before you come and stay with me. He hurried down, it says in verse 6. And look at how he received Jesus in verse 6. He received him joyfully. This is the proper response to our purposeful and kind Savior. Joy. When I read the Gospels in moments like this, I like to think and try to picture myself in the scene as though I'm Zacchaeus. And this Jesus, who I so desperately wanted to see, has just looked up at me sitting in a tree and said, come down so that I can stay with you. And so frantically, I start to hurry down. Now, I'm a timid climber, so normally I would do this slowly, but this time I don't care. Who cares about the scrapes? Who cares about the bruises? At the last second, I jump down and I say, you want to stay with me? Yes. <laughs> it's just my imagination, but can you feel the joy can you feel the joy, church, of knowing that the God of the universe has chosen to dwell with you? Out of everyone in the crowd, he has chosen to dwell with you. So while everyone around Zacchaeus is complaining and grumbling as they see this man being received by Jesus because of his sin, which we're going to see is apparent and there and right, 
All he can think about is the joy that he has because a new affection has been born in his heart. And this joyful reception in verse 6 is the start of revealing that new, re- new affection. But verse 8 is where it starts to get really queer. clear. Read that with me again. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Do you remember the rich ruler who left Jesus sad because he was asked to give of his riches? That's not Zacchaeus. That's not Zacchaeus because Zacchaeus has a new affection in his heart. His heart is now so overflowing with living water and joy in the presence of Christ that he explodes in response. Notice that we see the word behold again, but this time it's from Zacchaeus' mouth. And it's followed by a confession of the new Lord of his life. You see, with the grip of the old God of wealth, which caused him to defraud others for his own personal gain, broken by this affection, he shouts out to Jesus an act of repentance and the desire to make amends for his sin. Wealth no longer has a hold on his heart because now his treasure is Jesus. And church, truly seeing Jesus for who he is, truly understanding that he has chosen to come and dwell with you, causes our hearts to see Jesus as our all-satisfying treasure. And it changes us. It changes us. For Zacchaeus, this meant giving half of his possessions to the poor and restoring what he defrauded people of. That change might be something else for you. But let me ask you, as we're considering how to respond to these things, have you received Jesus as your all-satisfying treasure? We talk about this a lot at Grace Church. Have you received Jesus as your all-satisfying treasure? Is there evidence of this new affection in your heart? Because this is what the saving grace of God produces. Now, let me be clear. This is a battle at times in life because our sinful flesh is still with us and it wants to keep us from our treasure. Satan knows this and he spends his time trying to distract you with all kinds of trinkets and toys and goodies to get you to miss out on what will satisfy your heart. It is a battle to fight for Christ to be our treasure. And there are times, just like Pastor Steve said last week, where we need to go back under the fountain and we need to receive more of the glory of Jesus Christ. But church, the believing heart knows that Jesus is our treasure. It knows that he's supposed to be our treasure and it fights for it because when you're saved, God has given you a new heart and a new affection for Jesus Christ. So ask yourself, is Jesus your treasure today? Do you need to sit back under the fountain today? 
Is this affection bearing fruit in your life? This is what this interaction with Zacchaeus demands for us to think about. There's one more thing to highlight in verses 9 through 10. I think it's, it's actually so helpful for sitting under the fountain. What I see here is an astonishing declaration. Oh, I want to encourage you, set your hearts on the words of these verses. Just soak them in. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I don't want to get lost in the language of verse 9. This is not a moment to debate whether Zacchaeus' whole house is saved. It's not a point to try to articulate that somehow Zacchaeus' works might have earned him salvation. No, if, if we take it for face value, which is what we should do, it is simply Jesus pointing out that Zacchaeus' response shows that salvation has come to him. Now, what's interesting about this passage, as I was thinking about it, is we see sin mentioned. Zacchaeus is called a sinner. We see salvation mentioned here. But did you notice that we never see faith mentioned? Such a strange thing to have a passage like this so geared on salvation and we don't see faith mentioned. However, I believe Jesus' declaration here is saying, do you see this man's faith? He wouldn't have done this without it. He's a true child of Abraham who lives by faith. But that's not the astonishing part of this declaration. Notice the phrasing by Jesus. He says salvation has come to him. Zacchaeus didn't earn salvation. It came to him. Jesus looked at him in his desperate need and came to dwell with him. And this is confirmed in verse 10 because this is the reason Jesus can declare that salvation has come to him. He says, for or because the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Salvation has come to Zacchaeus because Jesus is the Son of Man who came to seek and save those who are lost. One of the first things I highlighted was Zacchaeus is a fitting representation, and really he's a representation of all of humanity. We were all lost. We were all without hope of entering the kingdom of heaven. Don't, don't get confused. While it might not be from defrauding people as a tax collector or being deceived by the deceitfulness of riches, there is something in each one of us that says we are lost. We have turned away from God. We have turned away from our treasure. Our sin has kept us from this holy and awesome and wonderful and majestic and glorious and beautiful Savior. And we had no hope. And Jesus came not just to provide a way for you to find your way to salvation. No, he came to seek you out 
and to save you. He has pursued you with a relentless love. He has sought you and he has brought salvation to you. This is what this interaction in Luke's gospel is meant to show us. It's revealing the mission of Jesus in his saviorness. I don't know that's a word. Um, The son of man came to seek and save the lost. Let that sink in. The son of man came to seek and save the lost. And you were the lost. So let me end with one more question to consider in response. Do you marvel? Do you marvel at the fact that Jesus came to seek and to save you? Such a beautiful truth. We do see Zacchaeus seeking and receiving Jesus. This is happening for sure. I'm not getting there. But the goal of Luke in this passage, what Luke is after here is to open your eyes to see that Jesus first sought and saved you. And this is such a beautiful truth. God doesn't sit just passively waiting. He loves you too much for that. No, our God is always actively and purposefully pursuing. That's the beauty of the gospel. God didn't wait for us to get our act together. He came, he interceded, he sought, and he saved. Romans 5.8 says this, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen to this, one of the great prophetic pointers we may know in this room to the new covenant that Jesus would institute is found in Ezekiel chapter 36. But two chapters before this, this is what the Lord said in Ezekiel 34, 6 and 11. He says, they, my people, wandered all over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. And verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. What love, my God. What power, what beauty, what glory. So as we close today, let's marvel together at the God who seeks and saves. Will you stand with me as I pray this over us? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Make your name so much greater on our hearts in this moment than it was before we arrived here today that we are amazed by who you are. We praise you that in our darkness, the light of life came. We thank you that in our hopelessness, you gave us hope through Jesus Christ. We praise you that you came to seek and to save the lost. 
and we cling to the work that you have done. All that we have is from you. Even the very breath that we have, you have given to us. So we pour out our praise for what you have done for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.